This is John Doe from New York City. And I'm so embarrassed about listening to I Doubt It With Dolomore that I had to disguise my voice. Sorry about that. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Thalamore. All right, everybody, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us for this 626th episode of I Doubt It with Dollamore. I am your host, Jesse Dollamore, joined today by the lovely, the talented, the scholarly, Brittany Page. It is debate time. Debate recap. Yes. <laughs> um, it was a lot of people on the stage. Yeah, it was. 12, right? Too many. And yeah. that doesn't even mean too many, meaning some of the candidates I'm not a fan of. Uh-huh. It just means even if they are all grade A, top notch, it's too many. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as soon as you said uh, candidates that you're not a fan of, my my first thought was Tom Steyer and the moment when Aaron Burnett said, you're the lone billionaire on the stage. <laughs> And I just had the thought of, what is he doing up yeah. there? Well, listen, it's not even that... Let's use Tom Steyer as an example. Yeah. I like Tom Steyer. I think Tom Steyer has been great for the resistance movement movement against Trump. Mm-hmm. It's been awesome. However, just because you made a name for yourself as the impeachment guy doesn't mean you throw your hat in the ring to be president of the United States. Right. Yeah. Come on, bro. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. I'm looking for a bro clip. But <laughs> I'll skip it. Yeah. So in, in, I, I want to reinforce that as we go and as I've said many times on the show that when we criticize these candidates, it's not that we don't like them as people. We don't think that they're good for America in general. Like Amy Klobuchar, for example. I think she's a great senator. She's been wonderful on the Judiciary Committee. She definitely has a role to play, but I don't think that role is President of the United States. It doesn't mean that I'm tossing her out. Oh, we should discard her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, she's just you're not going to be president. Yeah, if I have my say. <laughs> well, one of the interesting things about this debate was. Everyone was going for Warren's throat. Oh, yeah. And it was clear the entire time that that was the goal, which is interesting because Joe Biden is still uh, the front runner in most of the polls. But they see the writing on the wall. Right. They see that the trend line is showing that Warren will soon be overtaking Joe Biden. Um, But it was just interesting because that hasn't happened yet. And they all still went after Warren and largely ignored Biden. In previous debates, Biden had been a focus of uh, many of the candidates' ire, but that did not happen in this debate. Well, I think one of the reasons it didn't happen is because he's under fire from Trump. And Mm -hmm. if you start attacking Joe Biden, you don't want to align yourself or ally yourself with Donald Trump and his you know, miscreant forces. Yeah. So people avoided 
especially when it came to the thing about Hunter Biden yeah. and Ukraine, yeah. no Democrat, if anything, they, they supported him. Right. No one took that tack to attack him. Yeah. I think there were even um, questions about that where there were attempts to get other candidates to comment on the situation. No one took the bait. And yeah, no one was taking the bait, which is a political decision, I think. Um, if it was politically beneficial for them, they would likely take the bait, but because they know that it would look bad and that it would it would make voters unhappy that they're doing that, yeah. that's why they're not doing that. I mean, not to like uh, be a pessimist about it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know. Yeah. So, as we always do with the debates, we, we like to kind of, I don't know, pick winners and losers. Is that what we call it? Yeah. Is that what we call it? That is what we call it. <laughs> yeah. So who do you think? Who do you think was the winner and who do you think was the loser? And and listen, I, I was thinking about this today. When we say winner and loser, it's not like, oh, they, they're they going to be the, the nominee. It's just who, who fared better, who came out ahead. Sometimes it's even relative to their past performances. Um, like one, I think last debate I said that Cory Booker, I thought really did well. Mm-hmm. Uh, who who do you think this time? Um, I'm gonna do losers first. Oh, right. And I'm gonna go um, Beto. Really? Yes. Huh, okay. I just I don't really care for. Um, I mean him in general, I guess. But also, he he went after Warren and her tax policies and talked about it. The as, wealth tax, right? As though she's being punitive. That's the word that he used. And so he made it kind of more personal, I think, than it needed to be. Like, not necessarily about the policy, but about Elizabeth's Warren attitude toward the rich. Um, That's kind of where he was taking it. Yeah. And he was, I think, countered in the way that he was speaking by people like Cory Booker to kind of keep the tone a little bit less in attack mode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Cory Booker did that several times during the debate. Yeah. Like, I'm going to answer the question, but first, I want to talk about how we talk to each other. Yeah. Like really trying to keep it above board, which I appreciate, even though that's certainly not my 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 style or strength. Yeah. Yeah. I, Beto was so charismatic and great when he was running in Texas against Ted Cruz. Yeah. And seeing his candidacy for president has been just a complete um, turnaround. I mean... It, it is not the same Beto that we saw running in Texas against Ted Cruz. Even on positions. Yes. E- even positions-wise, he's he's different. Right. Yeah. So, um, also, Tulsi Gabbard, obviously. She's my loser. Yeah, obviously sure. a loser in the debate. Uh, <laughs> gotta wonder why she's on the stage. Very strange. Um, things with her have gotten more strange over the past few days, going on Tucker Carlson's show twice. Twice! Twice she goes on Tucker Carlson's show I, not an avowed white supremacist, but certainly in words and philosophy is a white supremacist. And she's taking space with him on air. Yeah, but and she knows where her bread is buttered, because even during the debate, she called out to Andrew Yang, said he's my friend. Right. Because the two of them are candidates who are favored in these alt light alt right circles on the Internet. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it's a Jill Stein kind of reboot here. People um, wanting to pull from the Democratic votes. I don't really know what the strategy is here, but I do know that those two candidates are favored among 
those groups yeah. on the internet. They absolutely are. I mean, even Andrew Yang has had to address it and say, hey, listen, if you're a racist, if you're a white supremacist, I don't want any part of you. Yeah. He's had to say that, mm-hmm. which makes you, goddamn, God what, what's going on over there in his candidacy and his message that is attracting those types? Well, in the two, the two of them, um, I think this happened for you. You criticized Tulsi Gabbard in a tweet, and you saw like Andrew Yang fans coming to her defense, yeah, yeah. or vice versa. Yeah, I think it goes both ways. For sure, it does. Yeah. Um. So the winner for me, um, I think Elizabeth Warren did pretty well. Uh, with all the attacks coming her way, she had the most speaking time. Um. <laughs> largely because when they tried to cut her off she like kept talking yeah um but also because she was being attacked the most so naturally she had to get more time to respond well, to those you, attacks that's right just based on the rules if someone invokes your name or your policy you get a chance to respond so she's going to get more time just based on that since everyone was in it to to uh, almost everyone was in it to bring Warren into it so yeah I also um, liked what Cory Booker brought to the conversation, um, although... Are we on to winners now? Yeah. All right. He just seems like uh, his role up there is kind of like mediating things between everybody. <laughs> I really like Cory Booker. I mean, I know we've said it a million times, but he he, he is the adult in the room. I think I think he has a lot going on in the future of American politics. I really hope he'll run again. I don't see him winning this time, but I, I really hope he'll run again. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I I, took a little different tack as far as my new word apparently, tack today. Uh, I took a little different approach with the winner this time. I thought Pete Buttigieg really came out on top because he had a few spars, for instance, with Warren. He did because he was standing right next to her. And then Beto, he also. Yeah. And I just thought he did a... I didn't always agree with everything, certainly, but I just thought that he he shined in a way that he needed to shine to continue to raise his profile, and uh, I I thought he was the he came out on top. Yeah, there's no denying that he seems very comfortable in that environment, and that he's able to. Um, slow things down, take a reasonable, rational approach to answering a question. Um, He did get uh, a jab in on Beto about how he didn't need a lesson in courage. Yeah, I think I have that clip. I think so. Um, That's another thing let's talk about real quickly. CNN is being real weird with how they, they release the audio for me to be able to put together this show. That's why we're delayed here is I had to scrounge Mm -hmm. like it's six years ago and I didn't know what I was doing trying to find audio clips (laughs) when we first started. Well, what your approach was, we both watched the debate that night. I was a little late coming home from work um, because things come up and then you're late. Uh, But... Things do come up. Uh, um, you were writing down the times of particularly useful yeah. or um, important exchanges during the debate. And the plan was, because this has happened in the past, where the entire debate gets released and then you can just go through and match your timestamps to exactly the right. full debate video. Yeah. And what happened was they did not release the full debate. They released it in segments. So all of those notes that no, you took. They released it in one segment, which was the very first 10 minutes, which was about impeachment. Mm-hmm. So the first hour is nowhere online. Yeah. Nowhere. So all of those, the copious amounts of notes that you took are completely useless. And there was no point to that whatsoever. That is right. Much like life in general. 
<laughs> um, but we appreciate your hard work, Jesse D. Well, I don't need my, my DS here. I just wanted to give some kind of an explanation as to why it's been a goddamn shit show. You know, and then also, let me say this. I bit my tongue. You did. Oh, my God. While I you were bit sleeping. My tongue. Yeah, I woke up. Mm-hmm jolted up in bed because i had just bit my tongue while sleeping that i must I even be, know like, how it happened grinding my teeth or something yeah and maybe uh, that dentist was telling the truth like if you watch two of my videos this week uh-huh i'm really making an effort to speak correctly it was a, a shit show you know you record a 10 minute video yeah and it takes 30 minutes to do it because i have to like uh we got to redo that. It didn't look right. Well, it was like watching an actor do an accent because as soon as the camera, as soon as I hit not stop recording on the camera for your video, you went right back into. So how was that? Does that sound good? <laughs> you know, you you really yeah. you couldn't talk. I mean, it, we, we couldn't do the show because number one, it was hurting you. Yeah. your tongue to rub up against your teeth while you're talking and number two you sounded ridiculous and oh, we can't have yeah. that well it's more ridiculous than normal yeah well what happens is i'm home alone all day with the goddamn dog uh-huh and i don't speak i don't talk to anybody uh-huh. <laughs> and so when you come home then i'm like i'll talk and then oh geez that really is not in good shape yeah yeah so So let's talk about which candidates performed best, according to viewers in general, not just Jesse D and me. Um, This is something that 538 does for every debate. They take a group of viewers and they survey them um, before the debate, and then they survey them after Hmm. the debate. So they're comparing each candidate's pre-debate favorability to the post-debate favorability to see how the ratings have changed yeah and according to this survey that they did klobuchar and Buttigieg were the two candidates who exceeded expectations given their pre-debate favorables the warren still received the highest debate grade overall yeah so people were um happiest with klobuchar and Buttigieg, um their debate performance did you choose losers by the way yeah, Tulsi. Oh, okay. Uh, a big fat goose egg for me. Okay, got it. <laughs> um, but you're you're right on track with the viewers in this 538 poll uh, with Buttigieg. Well, not really, because the other one that I said that I mentioned only negatively was Klobuchar. Mm. <laughs> not in every case. I, just, I don't. She doesn't come across as genuine in the debate. She doesn't cr- come across as. Everything for her, for her, from her seems scripted, I guess, to me. I, I don't know why that is. Mm-hmm. And we know people who work on her national campaign. Yeah. It's not like I don't have a connection there. It's just, I'm not, she's not lighting me up. I'm not getting, uh, as Chris Matthews said, you know, that tingle up my spine or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> up my leg. <laughs> well, and just to give you more information about this, it's a 538 Ipsis poll. By the way, I finally got called for one of these public opinion polls. I oh. think it was Ipsos. Was it? I don't know. I don't remember. Anyway, I was hoping it would be something exciting, like how much do you hate Donald Trump? Right. Impeachment, rah, rah, rah. <laughs> and it was about Southern California Edison and the decommissioning of the nuclear S- power plants. San Onofre. And I'm just like, yeah. really? This yeah. is, I finally take the time to answer this. But at least you got to get your opinion on the record about how shitty you think the electric company is. That is true. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I, really I, wonder, about that. I wonder if they were 
based on my answers, the per se, the person who was surveying me, if they were thinking, what the hell did Southern California Edison do yeah. to this bitch? What is going on here? She hates them. Yeah. Well, they've, they've caused us. We, there have been times we were scheduled to record and our power's out for eight hours when it was supposed to be out for an hour of scheduled maintenance. Not only that, but my electric bill is substantially more yeah. than everyone who lives around me. Like my friends, everything. And I've called and I've tried to say what the hell's going on. Yeah, it's like somebody's running a meth lab with an extension cord plugged into our backyard or something. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, um, so the person who, um, no, what was I talking about? Okay, based on this poll, right? 538 yeah, yeah. Ipsos poll. Um, the, the survey amount of people, it was 3,360 likely Democratic primary voters. And then in the second wave of people that were surveyed, um, 1,761 respondents. So according to this, the biggest change in net favorability from before and after the debate Let's go negatively first. Tulsi. The negative change. Uh, no, actually, Beto. Oh. Yeah. Um, he took a hit of 5.7 points. That was the biggest negative wow. change. And then Tulsi. Not, listen, Beto, it's not too late to get out of this race and run for Senate. Yes. That's really what needs you to happen. You have, a, a, there is a chance here. All we need is four seats. We have a wonderful chance in Arizona with with astronaut Mark Kelly running against Martha McSally. We have an awesome chance there. We have a chance in Colorado. We don't have a chance in Texas unless we get somebody with name recognition who is well-liked, who can get out of the presidential race that is, you're doomed. Do a service for your party Moreover, do a service for your country and run for goddamn Senate. Yes, thank you. This this message is brought to you by Jesse D. <laughs> I was waiting for for what you were going to say. Um, <laughs> and then, as you predicted, your incorrect prediction, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, she um, took the second hardest hit. In terms of net favorability, good. Loss. At least there was a hit, though. Yeah, it would make me wonder what in the fuck is going on in the minds of Democratic voters mm -hmm. if she upticked after that performance. Yeah, so which and, we're going to get to. Yeah, and then um, after her, it was Castro who took the third largest hit in terms of net favorability. Yeah, he kind of just he's he's just kind of disappeared into the background, mm -hmm. as has. Kamala Harris, another person who was there who we haven't talked about. Yeah. She's just like a non-issue anymore. Yeah. She she didn't speak very much also. Um, yeah. She went from sparring with Joe Biden being, um, you know, headed toward the top of the polling. Yeah. Being ahead. And now she's like below Cory Booker in terms of talking time. Yeah. 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 Meh. <laughs> <laughs> and she's our senator. Yeah. Keep yeah. at it at Senate, in the Senate. Mm -hmm. You're great in the Senate. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. You know, I think it has been difficult for people to hear us talk in a negative way about Beto. And, like, some people have taken it very personally. We got right? a lot of listeners in Texas because, who love him. Yeah, because there's a lot of love for him. And I understand that. But it's just, it's this is not the place for him right now. And if you are able to make a change elsewhere, that's what you need to be doing. And it yeah. just seems like this is an ego run. 
you know, um, rather than being where you can make the largest difference because you got some notoriety in your race against Ted Cruz. You thought, oh, what the hell? I'll try to be president now. It's kind of how it seems. Yeah. Yeah. And it bums me out. It really makes me wish that uh, Stacey Abrams would have would have come out. I almost said Casey Abrams, but that's a guy from American <laughs> Idol. Stacey Abrams would have come out. But, you know, I think she did the right thing, too. Yeah. Sitting out. This is not my time. Mm hmm. I'll, I've got a lot of a lot of years ahead of me. Mm-hmm. There's no need to rush this. It's kind of the argument with with somebody like Pete Buttigieg. It's why now? Why so early? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's. I think he's got a lot to offer. Anyway, we're going to get into all of this. We're kind of going off the rails here. Uh, is there anything else relative to the polling, relative to to five thirty eight, or or anything we should know going forward before we start the clips? No, I might insert things as we go through. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, on the other side, we'll analyze the actual moments of the debate. Support for I Doubt It with Dollamore comes from generous, engaged, intelligent, and good-looking listeners like you by way of Patreon. Your support on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month helps keep the show going and move the conversation forward one podcast at a time. If you would like to join the ever-growing family of supporters, please visit patreon.com slash I doubt it with Dollamore. So we got a whole bunch of new Patreon supporters that we're going to name next episode 627. That'll be kind of the normal news and comment episode. These are normal episodes. They're not bonus episodes anymore, but we like to, you know, I, these don't get quite the reach as the others. And we want, since we give people shout outs, we want to, we want to do that there. But I do want to say that if you are in a financial position to help the show, we would love to invite you to join the Patreon family for a little like two bucks a month. You can help us move the conversation forward, keep the lights on. We are growing both in audience, but also in our technical ability and our ambition. And we want to start doing things probably in the next six or eight months that are outside of the bounds of what we've been doing on the podcast. We want to start at least once a month, putting a, putting an episode up online. We want to start doing more call-in episodes that take some tech that we don't have right now. So you said once a month, we want to start putting episodes online. Oh, I meant YouTube. You, you mean doing um, a recording of our episode once yeah. a month and putting it on YouTube. Yeah. 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 Which, which sounds like once a month, but it's, it's an, it's a, an entire effort that's going to go into it. Yeah. It's not as easy as just setting up a webcam and showing both of us. I want to do it, have it be a little slicker than just. Yeah. Two camera shot, you know. Yeah. It's going to be good. So anyway, we, we invite you. It's uh, dollamore.com slash Patreon or teamdollamore.com. You can also shop on Amazon, dollamore.com slash Amazon. Every little bit goes along. In, in fact, let me say this. We haven't mentioned the the, the merch and that's still out there. You go to dollamore.net. Mm-hmm. That'll redirect you to our Teespring page. Yes. And there's all kinds of stuff there. I even put up some like YouTube stuff like Dollamore Daily. Nice. And also uh, Treason. The Treason with the 45. Those are up there. So yeah. there's all kinds of stuff there that you can help support the show by purchasing. And you get not only do you get something back as far as the show is concerned, yeah, you get something uh, tangible. Yeah. You can hold in your hands. You also, if you do order, should send us a photo um, of you wearing the merch because you could be featured on our social media profiles, just like Wayne from the UK was. And, you know, 
he modeled Brother. that he modeled that shirt so well that we actually sold other shirts and people were like this green i need this green yeah those shirts are available in all kinds of colors it's not i just put black because it seems the i don't know it's what i would buy yeah. so. <laughs> so thank you wayne we appreciate your your modeling thank you very much very nice modeling all right let's get into this so the very first questions of the debate dealt with impeachment where do you stand on impeachment? Do you think it's a distraction? I think they knew going in that all every single candidate in the Democratic primary right now advocates for impeaching and removing Donald Trump from office, except, except one. So this first one is Warren and Sanders, kind of their answers. They are the leaders. Joe Biden does finally, once the opinion polls turned, and it was f over 50% of the American people who were approving of impeachment, he came out and said, oh, yeah, now we need to impeach. Oh, it's most important, very important. Do you think that the reason that he was delayed in making his announcement, though, is that he didn't want it to look like he was making a personal decision because this is related to him and Hunter Biden? Maybe. I'll give that. I'll say, yeah, maybe. Yeah. All I know is I'm speaking factually when I say once the opinion polls went 51% for impeachment, then Joe Biden said, I'm for impeachment too. Right. It doesn't, that doesn't look good either for me. Yeah, I understand that. But I'm saying if, if we're going to try to determine what the possibility, what the possible explanation is behind that delayed decision is it because he's directly implicated in what's happening here it could be yeah, yeah i mean i think that, sure. that i think that that's likely so we're gonna skip him because i you know he waited he waited too long his opinion doesn't matter <laughs> okay here is warren and sanders since the last debate, House Democrats have officially launched an impeachment inquiry against President Trump, which all the candidates on this stage support. Senator Warren, I want to start with you. You have said that there's already enough evidence for President Trump to be impeached and removed from office. But the question is, with the election only one year away, why shouldn't it be the voters who determine the president's fate? Because sometimes there are issues that are bigger than politics, and I think that's the case with this impeachment inquiry. When I made the decision to run for president, I certainly didn't think it was going to be about impeachment. But when the Mueller report came out, I read it, all 442 pages. And when I got to the end, I realized that uh, Mueller had shown too a fairly well that this president had obstructed justice and done it repeatedly. And so at that moment, I called for opening an impeachment inquiry. Now, that didn't happen. And look what happened as a result. Donald Trump broke the law again in the summer, broke it again this fall. You know, we took a constitutional oath, and that is that no one is above the law, and that includes the President of the United States. Impeachment is the way that we establish that this man will not be permitted to break the law over and over without consequences. This is about Donald Trump, but understand, it's about the next president and the next president and the next president and the future of this country. The Senator, impeachment must go forward. Thank you, Senator Warren. You're all going to get in on this, by the way. Uh, Senator Sanders, do Democrats have any choice but to impeach President Trump? Please respond. No, they don't. Uh, in my I want to pause there for a second. The button wasn't working. 
as much as I agree with everything she said there, I think a lot of these people are missing the point. The question was, are you not, in fact, just taking away the choices of the vote that the voters have made? Mm-hmm. And really, the correct answer here, and there is a correct answer, is no, absolutely not, because the Constitution has outlined this as a process, putting the choice back into the people's hands because the people vote for congressmen and women who in fact also vote for senators. So this is still a democratic process. This isn't taking away, because if you don't like the choice that was made, you can vote to remove your particular representative, both House and Senate. No, absolutely not. This isn't taking away the rights, uh, the, the choices of the people. It just isn't. Bernie Sanders. Judgment, Trump is the most corrupt president in the history of this country. Uh, It's not just that he obstructed justice with the Mueller report. Uh, I think that the House will find him uh, guilty of, worthy of impeachment because of the emoluments clause. This is a president who is enriching himself while using the Oval Office to do that, and that is outrageous. And I think in terms of the recent Ukrainian incident, The idea that we have a president of the United States who is prepared to hold back national security money to one of our allies in order to get dirt on a presidential candidate is beyond comprehension. So I look forward, by the way, not only to a speedy and expeditious impeachment process, but Mitch McConnell has got to do the right thing and allow a free and fair trial in the Senate. I'm glad that he brought Mitch McConnell into the conversation. Me too. Because I understand the focus on Donald Trump, talking about Donald Trump. uh, Kamala Harris mentioned Trump the most again this time. Remember, that's kind of been her... Just hoping he'll attack her. Her strategy, (laughs) right, where she she talks about him. Uh, She mentioned him 11 times. But Mitch McConnell also needs to be discussed because he is a problem And in addition to needing to get rid of Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell is also up to his ears in corruption. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I I appreciate that Bernie Sanders dragged him into the conversation. Well, if if for nothing else, it really does. And Mitch McConnell doesn't need to be raised on a national stage. He's he's well there. He gets his airtime. But it also helps to fund some campaign um, energy for McGrath, Amy McGrath, who is his opponent and who is raising money like gangbusters, Mm -hmm. which unfortunately in the system that we have, it's going to take money to oust Mitch McConnell. And you're not just ousting one man from office. You're also you're ousting institutional knowledge. He understands the Senate procedures, parliamentary parliamentary procedures so well that he's able to be a detriment, an obstacle an obstructionist at the highest level because he understands how shit works because in the Senate, a lot of it is jockeying and understanding how the votes work and how timing works with it. And we need to get him out of there just to, so the the Republicans lose that institutional understanding of how things work. All right. So uh, I only have two clips on this. That was that to give you kind of the, the flavor. And then we go to Tulsi Gabbard. I know Anderson Cooper said that everybody on the stage agrees. That wasn't the case. We have Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. 
Congresswoman Gabbard, you're the only sitting House member on this stage. How do you respond? Uh, if impeachment is driven by these hyper-partisan interests, it will only further divide an already terribly divided country. Unfortunately, this is what we've already seen uh, play out as calls for impeachment really began shortly after Trump won his election. And, and as unhappy as that may make us as Democrats, he won that election in 2016. The serious issues that have been raised around this uh, phone call that he had with the president of Ukraine and many other things that transpired around that are what caused me to support the inquiry uh, in the House. And I think that it should continue to play its course out, to gather all the information, provide that to the American people, uh, recognizing that that is the only way forward. If the House votes to impeach, the Senate uh, does not vote to remove Donald Trump. He walks out and he feels exonerated, further deepening the divides in this country that we cannot afford. She wants it both ways. Oh, I supported the impeachment inquiry. But then she's also saying that it is being run based on these hyper-partisan interests. Does she mean justice? There are outlined 10 instances of obstruction of justice in the Mueller report that are absolutely, without a doubt, 100% impeachable. And now we know of the contents of this Ukraine call to Volodymyr Zelensky. That is absolutely impeachable. And now we'll talk about this next episode. Donald Trump has officially granted himself the contract to have the G7 next year at uh, Doral, Trump National Doral. That's a violation of the Constitution and the Emoluments Clause. That is impeachable. So what what hyperpartisan interest is she speaking of? Justice, fairness, decency, having a president that is not abjectly, publicly fucking corrupt? What is she talking about? Well, her whole thing, right, is trying to set herself apart as being the most moderate, the most reasonable uh, choice on the stage. And so every time that she answers, that is her goal, is trying to illustrate how different she is from the pack. And obviously, uh, this answer makes her very different. Um, but it's also a dumb answer because... What is her reasoning behind that? I mean, I, I want to hear her justification for it. She's saying that it would uh, further divide the country. Country's pretty divided right now, okay? And if Donald Trump isn't held accountable, how do you think that's going to divide the country, right? I mean, either way, we're going to have divisions, people pissed off, people unhappy. So it's a dumb argument. Well, we need to land on the side of justice. If we're going to, if the country's going to be divided, and it is, you're right. You, you go to the side of justice. You hold accountable those in power who are abusing their office. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I just think it's strange that every time you hear this argument, it's people saying if he's impeached, it's going to be so divisive. Yeah. And it... <laughs> So we just let him do what he wants, I guess, is, is what she thinks. Yeah, but you never hear people talk about what happens if he isn't held accountable for yeah. what he's done. What damage is that going to do generations down the line for presidents to come? Right. I yeah. mean, how how we're raising the bar for how people can use their office to benefit themselves yeah. and not be held accountable for it. That is an important conversation to have as well. Absolutely. So I'm I'm very tired of this talking point because... 
it's just meaningless at this point. Let us also not forget that she sprinted to Trump Tower as soon as Trump was elected to meet with him. Immediately. She was one of the first to run to go meet with President-elect Donald Trump. What is that about? You know who this guy is. It's not like we elected Donald Trump and then all of a sudden it's like, what? What a complete 180. We had no idea he was like this. You don't need to be running to meet with this fucking piece of shit. Yeah. But she, you know, she's in the she's in the business of meeting with monsters. Her pal uh, Bashar al-Assad. I, 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 I'm being a dick when I say her pal, but she certainly is meeting with dictators against the advice of the State Department, and then making excuses for their behavior, and then standing for policies in direct contravention of the interest of the United States. Policies that Russia and Syria love. When you, when you, we're going to get into it. I'm getting fired up. Yeah, I'm also seeing this weird thing online where um, a lot of people talk about how attractive she is when they talk about supporting her. Really? Yeah. That seems about right for the neck beard incel community. And it's just very strange. Like that's your. Why is that a metric that needs to even be considered? <laughs> yeah, it's not relevant. Let's get into the serious stuff. Yeah. The questions, because it, it is a, a major thing that's happening right now. The U.S. turned against our allies, the Kurds. Uh, al- Donald Trump allowing t- Turkey to, to uh, operate an incursion into Syria, killing civilians. Donald Trump said, I don't like it, but go ahead. It is, we'll talk about it more, but here was the question. And we'll stick with Tulsi Gabbard. Congresswoman Gabbard, last week you said that American troops should get out of Syria now. You don't agree with how the president handled the withdrawal. What would you have done differently? How would you have pulled out troops without the bloodshed we're seeing now? Oh, first of all, we've got to understand the reality of the situation there, which is that the slaughter of the Kurds being done by Turkey is yet another negative consequence of the regime change war that we've been waging in Syria. Donald Trump has the blood of the Kurds on his hand, but so do many of the politicians in our country from both parties who have supported this ongoing regime change war in Syria that started in 2011, along with many in the mainstream media who have been championing and cheerleading this regime change war. Not only that, but New York Times and CNN have also smeared veterans like myself for calling for an end to this regime change war. Uh, Just two days ago, the New York Times put out an article saying that I'm a a Russian asset and an Assad apologist and all these different smears. This morning, a CNN commentator said on national television that I'm an asset of Russia. Completely despicable. As president, I will end these regime change wars by doing two things, ending the draconian sanctions that are really a modern-day siege, the likes of which we are seeing Saudi Arabia wage against Yemen that have caused tens and thousands of Syrian civilians to die and to starve. And I would make sure that we stop supporting terrorists like al-Qaeda in Syria who have been the ground force in this ongoing regime change war. I'd like to ask Senator Warren if she would join me in calling for an end to this regime change war in Syria, finally. That was another tactic she did throughout the night, was just 
randomly asking questions of uh, her her uh, fellow panelists, her fellow candidates. Yeah, well, let's let's uh, discuss how she accused the New York Times of calling her a Russian asset. Okay, this is very Trumpian. Her, her yeah. approach here. She's she's been acting Trumpian in this way, where she's talking about uh, how the system is rigged against her. This has been kind of her tactic, right? Talking about the media and the DNC, um, trying to that it's rigged against her. There's a conspiracy against her. Yeah, trying to usurp the role of voters, essentially. And this article that she referenced, right, where she accuses the New York Times. Of calling her a Russian asset, right? Yeah. Like the the New York Times issued an editorial um, and and said Tulsi Gabbard is a Russian asset. Yeah, listen, New York Times has its problems, but come on, man, that that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. So the article that she's referencing, um, it notes that she's a frequent topic of Russian state news media. Yes. But there is no inference and the, made. the bot network that goes out there in support of certain fringe candidates she's the candidate of choice right there's no inference there that she is a russian asset it's just the factual statement Re- of reporting the details right how prominent she is on russian state news media well and of course she is because she's one of very few politicians who advocate for positions that is that are uh, in the interest of Russia, that are in the interest of Syria, that are in the interest of Iran. She's talking about right there in that answer, doing away with sanctions, which other than war is one of very few diplomatic options that we have to, to put pressure on a country to do the right thing or do the thing in the interest of the United States. Yeah. It's just disappointing to hear someone on the Democratic stage attacking the media um, and in a way that is disingenuous and inaccurate. In a very, like you said, Trumpian manner. Very right. Trump-like. Right. There are legitimate criticisms to of have of the media. Absolutely. We yeah. <laughs> we talk about them all the time. But to make up lies, to use your platform to push lies and propaganda. Well, the other thing here, she also does this Trump thing where it, she only has 75 seconds to answer the question. A minute 15 to answer the question. And inside that 75 seconds, she said the word ongoing regime change war seven times. I just counted. Seven times. There's obvious that she's trying to get something across. It's like when Donald Trump says server, 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 servers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's nonsense. Also, uh, Pete Buttigieg. Um, the other veteran on the stage challenged her characterization of the war in Syria, of the uh, United States involvement in Syria as a regime change war. Yeah, well, we're going to get to that, right? We're going in line here. So these are all connected, these three clips I'm getting ready, or these two clips I'm getting ready to play. It goes from, from, from Tulsi Gabbard. She asked the question of Warren, which Warren asks, and then next up will be Pete ongoing regime change war. I'd like to ask Senator Warren if she would join me in calling for an end to this regime change war in Syria, finally. So look, I think that we ought to get out of the Middle East. I don't think we should have troops in the Middle East, but we have to do it the right way, the smart way. What this president has done is that he has sucked up 
to dictators. He has made impulsive decisions that often his own team doesn't understand. He has cut and run on our allies, and he has enriched himself at the expense of the United States of America. In Syria, he has created a bigger-than-ever humanitarian crisis. He has helped ISIS get another foothold, a new lease on life. I sit on the Armed Services Committee. I talk with our military leaders about this. I was in Iraq and went through the neighborhoods that ISIS destroyed. We need to get out, but we need to do this through a negotiated solution. There is no military solution in this region. Now, listen, do we need to leave the Middle East and have uh, uh, our military presence there anymore? Uh, Well, that's two questions. Yes, we do need to get out of there. Absolutely. However, we need to do it in a smart manner. You don't, because what happens when you leave, you just fucking uproot and leave. Well, we're witnessing what happens. Slaughter of people who have died in the cause, in the interest of the United States fighting ISIS. The Kurds, which Tulsi Gabbard admitted, she, she used the words, The slaughter of the Kurds is on Donald Trump's hand. The blood is on his hands. So if we are to honor the commitments that we have made, first of all, we don't have a large-scale ongoing combat operation in Syria. We don't. We had very few troops over there. They They are kind of a placeholder because Turkey's not going to Incur- take over that territory if there are American boots on the ground. It's just not going to fucking happen. Yeah, and I think maybe we want to explain just a little bit about that, that um, the American forces, they have been positioned um, along the northern Syrian border. and Which butts up against Turkey. And like you just said, they've just kind of been like frozen in place. Um, and they're helping to do two things. Um, root out the Islamic State. And protect Kurdish allies from Syrian or Turkish aggression. There are also thousands of ISIS prisoners that are under the the charge of of the Kurds, which we are helping to guard or keep imprisoned. And so what I think you're saying is, is that there's some inconsistency here to Tulsi Gabbard's answer, where she is saying that the American troops need to be pulled out that um, we can't be a part of these quote-unquote regime change wars, which is not what this is, according to other people like Pete Buttigieg. Um, But then she also says that the blood of the Kurds is on Donald Trump's hands. Right. So she wants to leave. Right. She agrees with the pulling out, but also says, oh, but the blood's on his hands. Well, if you support that policy of just uprooting our people and leaving, the, the end result will be the slaughter of the Kurds. It's also on your hands. Tulsi Gabbard. Right. So there's some inconsistency there. And I think that 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 is lost because, listen, there's so much to know. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you you listen to this three hour debate and all the different issues that were covered and they didn't even talk about climate change. They didn't talk about immigration. Right. So many of the topics were left off the table in that three hour discussion. But getting into the weeds of so much of what was discussed, like it's difficult to know all of this. And foreign policy is an area in which I don't know like 
a whole lot. Yeah. I don't know anything. I think a lot of Americans, that's the case. Yeah. And so it's easy to listen to Tulsi Gabbard's answer and the discussion. Um, it sounds good. Between Pete Buttigieg and her and, and think, oh, like, who am I going to go with here? But really not know what anyone is talking yeah. about, you know? Um, so it takes a little bit of work to really work through her answer, even if it sounds good. Yeah. You know, here's here's the other thing. Let, 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 let's address this. Let's go back a few years here and remember the terror, psychic and actual terror that was being committed all over the globe at the hands of ISIS under the black flag. Paris, the slaughter in Paris. That was ISIS. All of the under the auspices of ISIS or in ISIS inspired attacks. We don't want to go back to that. And by many accounts, some of those prisons and those prisoners who were being held by the Kurds have been released into the wild to go back to their to their terror. We don't want to go back to that. It is in the interest of the United States. It's in the interest of the planet for ISIS not to raise its head again. Is war bad? Yes. Is war sometimes necessary? Unfortunately, yes. You cannot exist on this planet with the, the socio-geopolitical makeup that we have and take combat and combat operations off the table altogether. It just, it's Pollyanna. It's not the world we live in. We, it should be a last resort, not a first, not a John Bolton model of how we address global conflict. But you cannot rule it out. Otherwise, we end up with monsters like ISIS running rampant across the globe, killing innocent civilians carte blanche. Reasonable people can have disagreements on this issue, right? But I think the important thing is, is that every single candidate on that stage in the Democratic primary needs to be held accountable for the things that they're saying. And they need to be coming from a place of evidence and factual discussion points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you did not see that happening with Tulsi Gabbard. Well, what you saw was seven times in 75 seconds saying ongoing regime change war. Mm -hmm. Here's Pete Buttigieg. Every solution Mayor Buttigieg, region. Mayor Buttigieg, like many of your fellow candidates on the stage, you've been calling for an end to endless wars. What's your response on Syria? Well, respectfully, Congresswoman, I think that is dead wrong. The slaughter going on in Syria is not a consequence of American presence. It's a consequence of a withdrawal and a betrayal by this president of American allies and American values. Look, I didn't think we should have gone to Iraq in the first place. I think we need to get out of Afghanistan. But it's also the case that a small number of specialized special operations forces and intelligence capabilities were the only thing that stood between that part of Syria and what we're seeing now, which is the beginning of a genocide and the resurgence of ISIS. Meanwhile, soldiers in the field are reporting that for the first time they feel ashamed, ashamed of what their country has done. We saw the spectacle, the horrifying sight of a woman with the lifeless body of her child in her arms asking what the hell happened to American leadership. 
And when I was deployed, I knew one of the things keeping my, me safe was the fact that the flag on my shoulder represented a country known to keep its word. And our allies knew it and our enemies lose Thank that. you, Mayor. You take that away, you are taking away what makes America America. Thank you, Mayor. It makes our troops and the world a much more dangerous place. So he's he's blending here kind of platitudes and rah-rah America with some actual nuance. He ended there with, you know, the fl- flag waving behind him in the wind and <laughs> God bless America. He ended with that. Uh-huh. But he started, Conjuring a lovely image. Yeah, he started with some nuance there because this is an issue. Contrary to many, I'm sure I'm pissing all kinds of people off right now, but there very rarely in instances like this, when there are so many moving parts, both historically with our presence and our fucking bad decisions, but also real world that we live in right now. How are we going to deal with our past mistakes? Some of them sinister. Some of them possibly innocent. Who fucking knows? But we got to deal with what we have. This is a nuanced conversation. Yeah, and I think it's nice to hear from people that um, have experience, right, in the military, who have served, who have been there, who have a little bit more insight than the average person. I appreciate that. Um, I don't think we need as much of the... um, Americana iconography, like yeah. painting a picture My for us. My flag. We've always been honest and open and genuine. Yeah. Come on, dude. I mean, yeah. We we don't we don't need all that. <laughs> the conversation continues. It makes our troops and the world a much more dangerous place. Absolutely. So, really, what you're saying, uh, Mayor Pete, is that you would continue to support having U.S. troops in Syria for an indefinite period of time to continue this regime change war that has caused so many refugees to flee Syria, that you would continue to have our country involved in a war that has undermined our national security. You would continue this policy of the U.S. actually providing arms and support to terrorist groups in Syria, like al-Qaeda, HTS, al-Nusra, and others, because they are the ones who have been the ground force in this regime change war. That's really what you're saying. Mayor Pete. No, you can embrace, or you can put an end to endless war without embracing Donald Will Trump's you end policy the regime as change you're doing. War is the question. What we are doing? What is an endless in, war if it's not yet another regime change Please. war? Please allow him to respond. What we are doing, or what we were doing in Syria, was keeping our word. Part of what makes it possible for the United States to get people to put their lives on the line to back us up is the idea that we will back them up too. When I was deployed, not just the the Afghan National Army forces, but the janitors put their lives on the line just by working with U.S. forces. I would have a hard time today looking an Afghan civilian or soldier in the eye after what just happened over there. And it is undermining the honor of our soldiers. You take away the honor of our soldiers, you might as well go after their body armor next. This president has betrayed American values. Our credibility is in tattered. I will restore U.S. credibility before it is finally too late. Now, what he's talking about there is an actual thing. That's the morale of the troops. And it is an intangible, but a, a, it is a mountain of importance. It is vastly underrated among civilians in America who try to quantify and talk about the U.S. involvement. Mm-hmm. Morale is a big fucking deal. And what Donald Trump did had to have disheartened and taking the wind out of the sails of active duty boots on the ground 
for sure. So the conversation does wrap here. They go to Bernie, and then Pete also has some things to say with some music playing and a flag behind him. I will restore U.S. credibility before Senator, it is finally too late. Senator Sanders, is, is Turkey still a U.S. ally? Should they remain in NATO? I'm sorry, say that Is again? Turkey still a U.S. ally? Should they remain in NATO? No, Turkey is not a U.S. ally when they invade uh, another country and engage in mass slaughter. The, the crisis here, as I think Joe said and Pete said, is when you begin to betray people, and in terms of the Kurds, 11,000 of them died fighting ISIS, 20,000 were wounded. And the United States said, we're with you, we're standing with you. And then suddenly one day after a phone call with Erdogan announced by tweet, Trump reverses that policy. Now you tell me what country in the world will trust the word of the president of the United States. In other words, what he has done is wreck our ability to do foreign policy, to do military policy, because nobody in the world will believe this pathological liar. But this, you, this is really important because what this president has done shows that American leadership shapes the behavior of our allies, or sometimes allies too. Remember, the problem right now is not just that with our competitors. And for example, a place like China, the people of Hong Kong rise up for democracy and don't get a peep of support from the president. It's not just the behavior of adversaries like Russia, but our one-time allies, like Saudi Arabia, which the CIA just concluded was responsible, as we all knew, for murdering and dismembering an American resident and journalist, and Turkey, which was an American ally. That's the point. We had leverage, but when we abandon the international stage, when we think our only choices are between endless war or total isolation, the consequence is the Thank disappearance you, of U.S. leadership from the world stage, Senator, and that makes this entire world a more dangerous place. Senator Klobuchar, should Turkey remain in NATO? Nope. <laughs> uh, that last thing that he said is, is spot on. That it's, it's not a question of, of full-on involvement or total isolation. Mm-hmm. It's a nuanced conversation that needs to be had. Mm-hmm. Does our fo- footprint need to be our footprint? Does it need to be uh, less than it is now? Yes. Do we need to be in fewer places? Yes. But not, not, not in, in, in a situation where you create a vacuum. Where bad actors get to pol- proliferate. Right, and he he used that distinction, nuanced versus. Wait, did he say nuanced, or is that your word? That's my word. Um, nuanced versus isolationist, right? And you can see who falls on uh, those those various sides. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very easily, you can see it. Yes. So let's move on to another topic. This is between Pete and Beto about gun policy. This is that moment that you talked about, where he's like, "I don't need to be lectured by you." Um, and then Beto tries to do this thing where he says something to the effect of, you know, when you said it was a bright, shiny object or jingling keys, I'm kind of putting my own thing on there there. But he's like, well, that was that was a slap of the face to everybody. He didn't use a DJ voice, but that was a slap in the face to all the voters and blah, blah, blah. He is trying to. Well, let, let me put it this way. This is a moment, and I think Cory Booker does jump in. I think I have a clip. Let me look. Yeah, I do. Cory Booker does jump in and like, hey, man, let's let's think about how we talk to one another. It was pretty good. 
We want to turn back to domestic issues and the epidemic of gun violence in this country. We're less than 100 miles from Dayton, Ohio, where two months ago, a gunman killed nine people using an AR-15-style weapon with a high-capacity magazine. Congressman O'Rourke, in the last debate, you said, quote, hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. But when you were asked how you'd enforce a mandatory buyback, you said police wouldn't be going door to door. So how exactly are you going to force people to give up their weapons? You don't even know who has those weapons. All right, we're pausing. That's the question. Mm-hmm. How specifically are you going to enforce that policy of confiscating or buying back weapons on a mass scale across these United States. That's the question. When you don't even know who has them. That's right. Mm -hmm. Remember, that is the question that I would love to know because if this is something that's doable, then fucking right on, let's do it. Let's see what Beto says. Look, we're going to make sure that the priority is saving the lives of our fellow Americans. I think almost everyone on this stage agrees that it's not right and as president would seek to ban the sale of ar-15s and ak-47s those are weapons of war they were designed to kill people effectively efficiently on a battlefield you mentioned the massacre in in dayton nine people killed in under 40 seconds in el paso texas 22 were killed in under three minutes and the list goes on throughout the country so if the logic begins with those weapons being too dangerous to sell, then it must continue by acknowledging with 16 million AR-15s and AK-47s out there, they're also too dangerous to own. Every single one of them is a potential instrument of terror. Just ask Hispanics in Texas. Univision surveyed them. More than 80% feared that they would be a victim of a mass terror attack like the one in El Paso that was targeted at Mexican-Americans and immigrants, inspired in part by this president's racism and hatred that he's directed at communities like mine in El Paso. So I expect my fellow Americans to follow the law, the same way that we enforce any provision, any law that we have right now. We don't go door to door to do anything in this country to enforce the law. I expect Republicans, Democrats, gun owners, non-gun owners alike to to respect and follow the law. Just to follow up, your expectations aside, uh, your website says you will find people who don't uh, give up their weapons. That doesn't take those weapons off the street. So to be clear, exactly how are you going to take away weapons from people who do not want to give them up and you don't know where they are. If someone does not turn in an AR-15 or an AK-47, one of these weapons of war, or or brings it out in public and and brandishes it in an attempt to intimidate, as we saw when we were at Kent State uh, recently, then that weapon will be taken from them. Uh, If they persist, there will be other consequences from law enforcement. But the expectation is that Americans will follow the law. I believe in this country. I believe in my fellow Americans. I believe that they will do the right thing. Thank you. Mr. Uh, Mayor Buttigieg, just yesterday you referred to mandatory by. It is easy to say things. When I'm president, (laughs) everyone will have a Cadillac health care plan easy it's so easy just to say things when i'm president of the united states everyone will have a six figure per year income Mm -hmm. difficult to implement easy to fucking proclaim easy to say look we have a donald trump right now trade wars are easy to win they're good and easy 
It'll be easy to do taxes. It'll be easy to do this. Very difficult to implement. We want a president of the United States who understands the difficulty of implementation. And I don't think Beto's that guy. This might sound great if you're in a densely populated area like New York City or Los Angeles or some other metropolitan area. But if you're an American who lives in Texas or in Idaho or in Nebraska, this doesn't resonate as well. The government coming to take your weapons. Do we need to ban assault weapons? You're goddamn right we do. I think I've made that perfectly clear. Especially in the intervening months and years after Las Vegas, I've made that clear. But we need a real, functional, workable solution that isn't pie in the sky or like, well, I just trust that people are going to do the right thing. If we trusted that people would do the right thing, we wouldn't have laws against bank robbery. The reason you have the law is because you don't trust that people are going to do the right thing. Am I wrong? Well, I also think it's important that we we distinguish ourselves as the party or the side um, that is concerned with facts and wants our candidates to have a plan for how they're going to do things. Yes. Not just someone who is saying um, that they want to do this, they want to do that. Someone who, when asked, can give a detailed explanation for how they would go about doing it, how it would actually work. Yeah. Um, Donald Trump was successful in just saying things and not explaining them, just using little phrases, getting people excited. He knew it right? would make people feel good. Or it yeah. would at least resonate with them in some way. Right. But we want to be different in that we want to slow that process down, think about the answers that people are actually giving, and go a little bit deeper than just, oh, that sounded good. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Right? How would it actually work? And does this seem reasonable? And you're not hearing a lot from Beto on that. Well, you would think that, one, he said this a couple debates ago, at least last debate. I think it was two, though. If you're going to say it, you've had all kinds of time to put together a plan with some of the smartest people on your campaign staff, at least to have a plan. He hasn't done that. There is no plan. Well, and that's the thing. He's relying on, again, that little soundbite that really resonates with a lot of people, right? We're going to take your guns. Okay, a lot of people like that. Well, I think... Not the taking of the guns, but there won't be those guns out there anymore. I think that's what really resonates. But but when he said that at yeah. the he went and oh, tweeted the, the it. Applaud, yeah, yeah, yeah. He it became a thing, right? Hell um, yeah, we're gonna take your guns. Yeah, it yeah. riled up the other side. It was he he wanted that to happen. He wanted that phrase to make people excited, get them invested. Um, but did it go beyond the phrase? No. Yeah. Right? Well, I think I think the other thing here, you're absolutely right. The other thing here is that we need to not be so afraid of incrementalism with both healthcare and with this. That's how things get done in the real world. You sound like Amy Klobuchar. It's step by step. 
Well, no, you don't just yank the fucking rug out, especially with like health care. It's a fifth of the United States economy. You don't gamble with that. I, why are you saying no? You sound like Amy Klobuchar. This wow. is what Amy Klobuchar was saying during the debate. She kept talking about how she knows how to get things done because she works with people on the other side and she knows how to negotiate. She knows how to take those steps. And she didn't use the word incrementalism, but why don't you write her because she's going to next debate if you give her that line. Wow. <laughs> this is fucking bullshit. So anyway, let's re-record the intro where you said who your winner was and you can change your answer to Amy Klobuchar. <laughs> Let's let Pete and, and Beto go at it. Let's do it, Amy. Back says confiscation and said that Congressman O'Rourke has been picking a fight to try to stay relevant. Your response on guns. Well, Congressman, Congressman, you just made it clear that you don't know how this is actually going to take weapons off the streets. If you can Ouch. develop the plan further, I think we can have a debate about it, but we can't wait. People are dying in the streets right now. We can't wait for universal background checks that we finally have a shot to actually get through. We can't wait to ban the sale of new weapons and high-capacity magazines so we don't wind up with millions more of these things on the street. We can't wait for red flag laws that are going to disarm domestic abusers and prevent suicides, which are not being talked about nearly enough as a huge part of the gun violence epidemic in this country. We cannot wait for purity tests. We have to just get something done. This, uh, this is not a purity Rock, test. This is, this is a country that loses 40,000 of our fellow Americans every year to gun violence. This is a crisis, and we've got to do something about it. And those challenges that you described are not mutually exclusive to the challenges that I'm describing. I want to make sure we have universal background checks and red flag laws and that we end the sale of these weapons of war. But to use the analogy of health care, it would be as though we said, look, we're, we're for primary care, but let's not talk about mental health care because that's a, a bridge too far. P people need that primary care now, so let's save that for another day. No, let's decide what we are going to believe in, what we are going to achieve, and then let's bring this country together in order to do that. Listening to my fellow Americans, to those moms who demand action, to those students who march for our lives, who in fact came up with this extraordinary, bold Thank peace plan that calls for mandatory buybacks, let's follow their inspiration and lead and not be limited by the polls and the consultants and the focus groups. Let's Mayor do what's Buttigieg, right while we response. have time to do what's right. Mayor Buttigieg. The problem isn't the polls. The problem is the policy. And I don't need lessons from you on courage, political or personal. Everyone on this stage is determined to get something done. Everyone on this stage recognizes, or at least I thought we did, that the problem is not other Democrats who don't agree with your particular idea of how to handle this. The problem is the National Rifle Association and their enablers in Congress, and we should be united in taking the fight to them. That's, that's, okay. that's a mischaracterization. Anderson, I've got to answer this. Never took you or anyone else on who disagrees with me on this issue. But when you, Mayor Buttigieg, described this policy as a shiny object, uh, I don't care what that meant to me or my candidacy. But to those who have survived gun violence, those who've lost a loved one to an AR-15, an AK-47, March for Our Lives, formed in the courage of students willing to stand up to the NRA and conventional politics and poll-tested politicians, that was a slap in the face to every single one of those groups and every single survivor of a mass casualty assault with an AR-15 and an AK-47. We must buy them back. What we owe to those survivors is to actually deliver a solution. I'm glad you offered up All that right. analogy to health care because this is really important. We are at the cusp of building a new American majority to actually do things that congressmen and senators have been talking about with almost no impact for my entire Thank adult you, life. No, we, this is really important, okay? On, on guns, we are this close to an assault weapons ban. That would be huge. 
and we're going to get wrapped around the axle in a debate over whether it's hell yes, we're going to take your guns. We have an opportunity you, to Mary. deliver health care to everybody. And some of the stage are saying it doesn't count. Senator Booker, I want to give other candidates a chance. Senator Booker, what's your response to Mayor Buttigieg? Well, so it is a little bit unfair there. I always feel for... I always feel for people who didn't serve when someone who did, who's a combat operator, and they're like, well, you don't have to, you don't get to lecture me on courage, either personal or political, because you know what he's saying there is, hey, pussy, you didn't serve in the military. I did. I wore the flak jacket. I took incoming fire. Yeah, especially on a debate stage when... I mean, on the internet, you could just like plow ahead and say whatever the hell that you want to somebody. Um, But he has to take a even handed approach in his response. Right. He can't. What's he going to say back? Yeah, yeah, I was a rich kid. Yeah, you're right. I didn't serve. Beto? Uh Uh, I don't know. He's married to a billionaire now. I don't know. Yeah. I I don't know his early. I don't know many poor people who end up married to billionaires. Yeah, I'm I mean, making assumptions I, here. I, I, I have don't no know. idea. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, I think it is hard. It's difficult to come back and and say something. Although I'm sure politicians can find a way, right? Talking about their grandma who was poor and a teacher, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, their um, like third cousin twice removed who was look, poor. Look, my nanny struggled financially. Yeah, I know about the struggle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So they go to Cory Booker to wrap up the topic. I want to give somebody. I want to give other. I want to give other candidates a chance. Senator Booker, what's your response to, to Mayor Buttigieg? Well, look, I, I again worry about how we talk to each other and about each other, and what this last week has shown. Uh, this young man in my neighborhood, I watched him grow up. I lived in some high-rise projects with him named Shahad, and he was murdered on my block last year with an assault rifle. I'm living with a sense of urgency on this problem because when I go home to my community, like millions of Americans, we live in communities where these weapons, where these gunshots are real every single day. And I know where the American public is. This is not about leadership. This is why when I talk about things like gun licensing and point out the differences between us, I'm not attacking people or their character or their courage on these issues. We all have courage, but it's frustrating that when the American people, 77% of Americans, agree on licensing, we don't need leadership right now. We just need folks that are going to stand up and follow where the people Thank already you. are because there are millions of Americans where this is a daily nightmare, where we're surrendering our freedoms to fear in this country. This is the first time in American history this fall where we have sent our children to school, the strongest nation on the planet Earth, and said to them, we can't protect you. Thank you, sir. So in school, we're going to teach you how to hide. There are more duck and cover drills and shelter-in-place drills in America now than fire drills. Thank you, If Senator. I'm president of the United States, I will bring an urgency to this issue and Senator make sure Klobuchar. that we end the scourge of, of mass violence in our Senator country. Klobuchar. So you heard that little line there about how we all have courage. Yeah. Right? That That's w- the way to do it. Yeah, just a subtle kind of message to everybody on the stage and this is why i called him a mediator (laughs) it just seemed like a lot of what he was doing was trying to stand in between people and say 
let's come together, guys. You know, we don't need to be um, having these personal insults. We can come together and there's more points that we agree on than we disagree on. Let's have a better tone, right? But not necessarily saying it directly, doing it in a subtle way like that, uh, where right after Pete Buttigieg calls out Beto for uh, the political courage comments, political and physical courage, right? Personal courage. Personal. Um, He says, we all have courage. Yeah. Come on, man. Yeah, it is. And really, it is something I think that's aspirational that we need to do more of and think about more. They both want to go in the same direction. It's just how quickly we get there. Both people, we all agree there needs to be no assault weapons on the street. There's no need to own an assault weapon. Not only is there no need, it is a detriment to our society that people are owning weapons of war. But it's how quickly we get to the end result. How effectively we do. There are a lot of competing interests in this nation. We have to do things smart that aren't going to tear at the fabric of our country. Next up is Bernie Sanders talking about his health. Senator, we are all very glad you're feeling well, as you just said. Um, but, but there is a question on a lot of people's minds, and I want to address it tonight. You're 78 years old, and you just had a heart attack. How do you reassure Democratic voters that you're up to the stress of the presidency? How do you reassure voters that you're up to the stress of the presidency? Coming off of a heart attack, where he had stents placed in his heart, in the arteries, or whatever the fuck happens exactly with that medical procedure. How do you reassure voters that you're up to the task? It's a very important question for a 78-year-old man who just suffered what could have been a life-ending heart attack. The question is so important, I would expect a very clear, very direct answer because the American people have a right to know It's not a luxury for us to know how healthy our president is. We have a right to know this information. Well, uh, let me invite you all to a major rally we're having in Queens, New York. BernieSanders.com. We're going to have a special guest at that event. And we are going to be mounting a vigorous campaign all over this country. That is how I think I can reassure the American people. But let me take this moment, if I might. Uh, to thank so many people uh, from all over this country, including many of my colleagues up here, for their love, for their prayers, for their well wishes. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I'm so happy to be back here with you this evening. Perfect. Wonderful. Vice President Biden. How do you reassure America that you're up to the task following your almost life-ending heart attack. Well, what I'm going to do is maintain the same rigor and schedule that led to my first heart attack. That's not an answer, everybody. It's just not. I'm not saying not to support Bernie Sanders as your candidate. If that's the case, that's fine. Bernie Sanders is awesome. Bernie Sanders, like I've said many times and I'll continue to say, is owed a massive debt of gratitude for moving the needle in this country for making a shift, a progressive shift, 
making it acceptable to have the kind of political beliefs that he has. But the fact remains, he has a serious health condition. He is 78 years old. That wasn't an answer. That was sufficient. So a lot of people felt this question was unfair. Not unfair. It's the most fair question that was asked of the night. There were even some defenses of Bernie Sanders from other candidates in their answers um, where people said, well, you're not asking us about our health. Yeah, that's stupid. That is a stupid thing to say. It's stupid. That's a fucking stupid thing. Yeah, you're 37 years old. You're 40 years old. You're 50 years old. You're not 78 years. Elijah Cummings just died at 68 years old. He was a decade younger than Bernie. Dead. This is, a, this is not about ageism. This is about the qualifications of someone and whether, listen, having a but, president but, die in office could shatter world markets. So it, it could be a major if thing. If that's the case, though, right, because you just made two points that butt up against what you're saying, because Elijah Cummings is a decade younger. Okay, so mm-hmm. younger people can get sick and die. Yes. Um, also, if, Me, if, a, pres- if a president gets sick get- and they die, then it could have catastrophic effects yes. on on the global economy. So isn't it important to know about every candidate's health sure. and where they are? But the reason it's not as important to to like, hey, Pete Buttigieg, how's your health is because. What's the light? It, what's more likely that Pete Buttigieg is going to die, or that seventy-year-old heart condition Bernie Sanders is going to die? It's about you're playing the odds here. You don't need to go down the line and say, "What's your bill of health?" We need to know. It is more. It's more readily uh, to affect the nation with Bernie Sanders than it is Kamala Harris. Is it going to be the case that, regardless of age, once the president is in office? that they are going to be evaluated and let like, you know how Donald Trump was evaluated and yeah, they, they yeah. discussed his health. The I don't healthiest know. president who's ever lived. Right. I, yes. I don't know if that is something that happens every time or if that was uniquely um, the case for Trump no, because year. of the discussion of his health. No, every year. Okay. So it happens yeah. where they uh, give the president a physical and then they let the public know how they are or. Yeah. Well, listen, we, Woodrow Wilson, I realize this is a different time. We're going back to the early part of the last century. But Woodrow Wilson was like in a fucking coma in the residence for months and months. And his wife was running the goddamn country. That's not the way it should be. We need to know. We need to have a president who is alive and robust and able to to face the schedule, the rigors of being president of the United States, which is... It's not the way Donald Trump treats it, which is getting into the rolling into the Oval Office at 11 a.m. It's a big fucking deal. Now I'm wondering what it would be like if Melania was running things. I mean, we've seen the White House at Christmas time. What would happen for the love of God? It would be a fucking horror show. (laughs) 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 Oh, God. Popeye is very alarmed. He just perked up. He stood up. Yeah, he's ready to protect you. So (laughs) we're going to end with there's a lot of talk about packing the court, about pushing back against the incursion of Republicans, the not playing fair of Republicans relative to the Supreme Court, blocking Merrick Garland from the court when he was 
He had the pick. He should have been, there should have been a vote on Merrick Garland, an up or down vote. Mitch, Mitch McConnell. Again, the institutional knowledge and awareness of Mitch McConnell is what fucked the Supreme Court. Put it in the state that it is right now when Antonin Scalia died. That is this question here about whether or not we should pack the court. First, talking to Biden, which, by the way, is the first time we're hearing from Biden on this show. <laughs> you know, he came in second in terms of speaking time, and I can't tell you anything that he said of note. Well, we're getting ready to hear. He was doing the same Joe Biden thing where I used to think of him as like a smooth talker. And what has happened? Did that change? Or was I just like uh, under a spell because of his pearly whites? I don't know. What, what, well, what was happening there? I, I think he may there. I think there's some cognitive decline because of his age. Like he uh, often says things and like, like, what? There's not going to be a CIA. What is he talking about? Like he'll say things that just he just he doesn't have the acuity that he used to where he could do that politician thing where they kind of go into autopilot. He doesn't right. have autopilot anymore. Mm. So this is another thing about Joe Biden. And I listen, I do like Joe Biden. He was a great vice president. He was a decent to Midland senator for Delaware. But he looks at things through the lens of 30 years ago when things were different relative to partisanship where Supreme Court justices weren't blocked out of hand after a president nominated them. And when asked about packing the court or increasing the... Let, let me also... I don't know, for those of you who don't know, the power to, to organize the courts, the federal courts, is a Congress. It's, it's outlined. The power to do so is, is given to the Congress. The federal courts don't nominate... They don't, they don't organize themselves. So the Supreme Court, if they wanted, like, oh, this is really hard. We need, like, six more members to bring us up to 15. That wouldn't be up to the Supreme Court. They just can't do that on their own. That would be up to Congress. And that's the question here. Is how do we bring ideological balance back to the court since we are now so far right with this particular Supreme Court after adding Neil Gorsuch? which should have been Merrick Garland, and after adding Bart O'Kavanaugh, sexual assault extraordinaire, how do we bring balance back to the court? Allegedly. Allegedly. I don't know. It's not open. Uh, how do we bring balance back? And a lot of people think we should add members to the court that have a more liberal viewpoint to do that. Well, they asked some of the, they asked some of the candidates on the stage, and here's Joe Biden. Vice President Biden, the Constitution does not specify the number of justices that serve on the Supreme Court. If Roe v. Wade is overturned on your watch and you can't pass legislation in Congress, would you seek to add justices to the Supreme Court to protect women's reproductive rights? I would not get into court packing. We, we had three justices. Next time around, we lose control. They had three justices. We began to lose any credibility for the court has at all. I want to point out that the justices I've supported, when I defeated Robert Bork, and I say when I defeated Robert Bork, I made sure we guaranteed a woman's right to choose for a better part of a generation. I would make sure that we move and insist that we pass, we codify Roe v. Wade. The public is already there. Things have changed. 
And I would go out and I would campaign against those people in the state of Ohio, Alabama, et cetera, who in fact are throwing up this barrier. Reproductive rights are a constitutional right. And in fact, every woman should have that right. And so I would not pack the court. What I would do is make sure that the people that I recommended for the court from from Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Elena Kagan, who used to work for me, to others, that they, in fact, support the right of privacy on which the entire notion of a woman's right to choose is based. And that's what I would do. No one would get on the court. And by the way, if, in fact, at the end of this, beginning next year, if, in fact, one of the justices steps down, God forbid, in fact, I would make sure that we would do exactly what uh, what what uh, McConnell did last time out. We would not allow any hearing to be Thank held you, Mr. for Vice new justice. So he's willing to play the same games as Republicans, disallowing a vote for an, any upcoming um, opening on the court, but not willing to do the next step, which would be trying to pack the court. It's inconsistent as far as I'm concerned. The longest lasting generational effect of Donald Trump's presidency will absolutely, absolutely be the judiciary in this country. The federal courts have been packed, not just the Supreme Court, but the appellate court, the circuit courts have been absolutely changed fundamentally with these Federalist Society judges. That's going to reverberate over generations in this country. It's a lifetime appointment to the bench. We're going to end with this question being posed to Pete Buttigieg. We would not allow any hearing to be Thank held you, Mr. Vice for President. New justice. Mayor Buttigieg, you have discussed expanding the court from 9 to 15 justices. What's your response to the vice president? That's right. When I proposed reforming the Supreme Court, some folks said that was too bold to even contemplate. Now, I'm not talking about packing the court just with people who agree with me. Although I certainly will appoint people who share my values. For example, the idea that women's reproductive freedom is an American right. What I'm talking about is reforms that will depoliticize the court. We can't go on like this where every single time there is a vacancy, we have this apocalyptic ideological firefight over what to do next. Now, one way to fix this would be to have a 15-member court where five of the members can only be appointed by unanimous agreement of the other 10. Smarter legal minds than mine are discussing this in the Yale Law Journal and how this could be done without a constitutional amendment. But the point is that not everybody arrives on a partisan basis. There are other reforms that we could consider, from term limits, don't forget justices used to just retire like everybody else, to a rotation off the appellate bench. I'm not wedded to a particular solution, but I am committed to establishing a commission you, on day Buttigieg. one that will propose reforms to depoliticize the Supreme Court because we can't. Thank go you on very like much, this. Mayor Buttigieg. See, that's a plan. One, he's open to a commission to study this, get this figured out, how we can depoliticize the bench. Because right now, our Supreme Court, as Joe Biden said, something about uh, the, he doesn't want to start to have the, the bench lose credibility. That's too late, brother. It is too late for that. With Hansy McGee, with his beer helmet, with the tubes and the beers up on the on the on the hard hat, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like the Homer Simpson Duff hat. Yeah, right, with a, a propeller or whatever on the top there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? Talking about Kavanaugh, everybody. So 
what he's talking about here is having a ten seat, having a fifteen seat bench, but five of the seats are actually appointed by the ten members of the Supreme Court who have to unanimously agree on the other member. That is a fascinating idea. I think that could be a way forward because you would have ideological. There wouldn't be a litmus test to these people. The other jurist would have to agree. Mm-hmm. They would understand the rigors of the job, what it takes intellectually, ideologically. I, I think that would be a good idea. Yeah. Um, I wish that these debates, here's the thing. Here's the deal, everybody. The ratings for this debate were much lower than the previous debate. And There's too many fucking people. I on don't the stage. know what would explain it. I don't know if people are becoming fatigued. That fatigue is real, right? I mean, just the influx of news on a pe- impeachment specifically right now, it's just constant. There's so much coming out. It's For tough sure. to follow. Yeah, yeah. Unless your full time job is reading the news, like you can't keep up with this, you know? Um, but as far as the November debate, I'm hoping that it will be better because so far eight people have qualified. Still, still a lot. <laughs> if it was an eight panel debate, yeah, uh, that would be pretty good. Yeah, I just I, this was twelve people. Yeah, what I started out saying, I'm kind of losing track here, is that I wish there were more time. To- there was more time to absolutely really dig in deep here on these issues. Also, three hours is untenable. It's too long. Yeah, I almost wish that they would do shorter amount of time, but more debates. Yeah dedicated to specific issues and really getting into the nitty gritty detail of things. Um, I think that would help educate voters. I think it would help set candidates apart uh, much more quickly. um, And we could get through this process a little bit faster. I think also getting down to details, like more of a granular level of how policy works would avoid the rancor Mm -hmm. and the, you know, Charges of not being patriot, pa- patriotic enough or or courage, any of that. I think you kind of avoid that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. So the next debate is going to take place on November 20th. That is basically a month away. So far, eight people have qualified. That is Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Andrew Yang, and Tom Steyer. By the way, Tom Steyer, you know how he's doing this, right? He's raised like $48 million, mm-hmm. like a million and a half of it is actually from donors, and he's kicked in the other $47 million from because he's a billionaire. Good times. Come on. That's not raising money. So He's buying his way into the debates. Well, no, not, not technically, because he still has to meet an individual donor threshold. It's not based on the amount of money that he raises. So the, the qualifications to get in the debate, there's two requirements. Like the, 600 from each state or something like that. The, go ahead, what it is. The first one is, oh, thank you. I'll go ahead. Uh, mm. The first one, they've secured at least 100. Okay, bro, don't come at me. <laughs> I'm interrupting myself. Um, They have secured at least 165,000 individual donors, including 600 individual donors from 20 states. Yeah. And then the second one is they've reached 3% in the polls in four Democratic National Committee approved surveys or 5% in two DNC approved polls from the four earliest primary and caucus states, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. Mm-hmm. 
So those are the eight candidates who have uh, met those thresholds. The candidates who have just met the donor requirement, but not the uh, polling requirement, Castro, Klobuchar, Beto, I know that I went with the first name there, difficulty saying the last name, (laughs) and Tulsi Gabbard. O'Rourke. The candidates who have yet to reach either requirement, uh, let's see if you remember any of these names. Marianne Williamson. On that list. Delaney. Yep. Or is that his name? Delaney? Yep. John Delaney. Uh, oh, um, I think uh, uh, the, the guy from Montana, I think he's out of there. Is that Governor Steve Bullock? Yep. Bullock. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to say Booker, but I knew it wasn't Booker. Then we have uh, Michael Bennett. Um, Colorado, yeah. Florida Mayor Wayne Messam. Yeah, that. come on. Ohio Rep <laughs> Tim Ryan. Yeah, and t- Oh, Tim Ryan already dropped out. And former, well, why is Vox listing this here? They, they're dumb. He dropped out. Okay. And former Pennsylvania rep Joe Sestak. Did he just uh, suspend his campaign? Are you confusing dropping out with suspending the campaign? Well, there's... it's Because that's why they would still list him if he only suspended. Well, a suspension of the campaign means he can continue to raise money to pay off the debt that he's accumulated. It doesn't mean he's still in the race. Well, until... You're right. Technically, he's he's still in. Thank you. I'm trying to illustrate why Vox would list it here. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're sticking up for Vox. Good job. They need the help. I'm sticking up for facts. That's what I'm sticking up for. How dare you, sir? All right. Well, we're going to end it there. We'd love to know your thoughts. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can always email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. One more time. 657-464-7609. Idoubtit at dollamore.com. We'll see you next time. For Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollamore, and this has been I Doubt It. Regime change war.